Hi, thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at the text John 8, 1 through 11, in the story of the woman caught in adultery. This week, Susan explores how this story can be divided into two, a surface story about the woman who is caught in adultery, and the deeper story about the religious leaders and how they are trying to discredit Jesus. We notice how the Pharisees were not seeking justice, but trying to trap Jesus. Yet Jesus robs them of their momentum and advocates for the woman. We see then Jesus invite the woman to an alternative lifestyle, a better lifestyle, to the one she was living. We too are reminded that we also need an advocate and a savior. And Jesus is extending his mercy to us, inviting us to a better life. I want to start today, um, we're going to spend some time in the story from John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, and it's the story of the woman who is caught in adultery. So you're probably familiar with the story, and I just want to read it to you. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, it'll appear on the screen there. This is what it says. At dawn... He, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I was one of the last to leave. Stone still in my hand here. We were there beside this great stone walls of the temple, the source of our strength, our tradition, our laws. 
From the moment Jesus spoke, I wanted to leave, but it was like my legs were made of that same stone. We finally had him. The case was airtight. We had been working for weeks, weeks to trap Jesus, to catch him in his own riddles and his own games. Healing on the Sabbath, inciting the crowds, outright blasphemy. The temple police had circled all around him at the festival of booths, but we needed to be careful, careful, careful of the crowds. They can be volatile, impulsive. They were tagging him as the long-awaited Messiah. We needed something to condemn him, and this was perfect. The woman herself was Unimportant, of course. We dragged her out from some wretched corner of the city after some of our agents caught her in sin. The the man? Oh, the the man in her bed. Not important. You're you're missing the point. Uh, The law of Moses is so clear on adultery That's why this was so perfect. Jesus would be condemned no matter which side he took, law or grace, conviction or forgiveness. Either we get him or the crowd will. I sat back from a safe distance to watch him squirm. In one phrase, he changed all that. Everything got turned around, and suddenly the finger was pointing right at me, at all of us, at you, at you. Jesus bent down, and he scrawled something in the ground. I I never did see what he wrote. It drives me insane. Then he said, let anyone among you who is without sin cast the first stone Silence. We were all frozen. Like we had become one with the stones ourselves and thump, thump, thump all over the courtyard. Everyone dropped their stones and quietly wandered away. And no stone would be thrown that day. I lingered, still trying to work out what Jesus had written in that dirt. And suddenly I realized that while I was focused on that, Jesus had gone off and turned to the woman who we had dragged naked from her bed. And she was covered now. I never saw how that happened. but I heard Jesus ask the woman where we had all gone. Has no one condemned you, he said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm still holding on to this. A reminder of how I judged others, thinking I I knew them, thinking I knew everything. Thinking I knew right from wrong. And I hate to think that Jesus was right, but I can't forget what he did. Maybe I'll hold on to this.
allow it to remind me of a different way of being, a better way. Maybe even maybe even his way. I need to think about this. What stands out for you in this story? You have a piece of paper and a pen. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I want you to write a word or two on that piece of paper about what strikes you from this story as you hear the scripture and as you listen to Alex um, retell a perspective of it. So tell me, what stood out from, for you in, in a word or two from the story? Just call it out and I'll repeat it so the people online can hear. Shame. What else? Grace for the woman. Anything else? No condemnation. Those are good words. Anything else? Say it one more time. Sin no more. Those things are all in that story, and we're going to talk about that today. So hang on to your little piece of paper. You might need it later. You know, I noticed um, a couple of things in this story, and the first thing I noticed is that this is actually not one story, but it's two stories. There are two two stories that are being told at the same time. Um, if you've ever seen a VeggieTales movie, um, you will know that VeggieTales, they write their stories on two levels, right? There's a level for the kids, and then there's a level for the adults. And uh, if you've ever seen um, uh, the VeggieTale episode of um, the Star Trek one, um, I'm a Star Trek fan. I grew up on the original Star Trek. And uh, in the Star Trek, there's Captain Kirk and the USS Enterprise. Well, when you watch VeggieTales, it's um, all these vegetables in space, and they're on the USS apple pie. And it's an apple pie. And it just makes you laugh. And so I watch the story, and I, I get everything my kid is getting, but I'm getting a whole nother level of stuff because it just makes me laugh because it's silly and because I love Star Trek as my siblings and my husband will affirm. Um, one, two, one story, but with two levels. And in today's scripture reading, um, the surface story that you hear, that you most easily catch, is the story of a woman caught in adultery. That's the surface level of the story. That's story number one. And that's, uh, Alex did a great job of just 
giving us an insight to how it would have felt to have been there and to have watched that happen. But there's a second story going on here, a deeper story about a group of religious leaders, Pharisees, who actually despised Jesus. They, they thought he was selling snake oil, as it were, and felt like he was deceiving people. And so they were desperately trying to find a way to trick him in either, to either say something or do something that would, uh, confirm their deep bias that he was not who he claimed to be, or to discredit him in the eyes of the people that he was influencing. He had too much influence, and it was threatening their position and their influence, and he had to be stopped. So the woman was dragged before Jesus in today's story, but she's just a means to an end. Their goal was more about Jesus being discredited and less about her and her sin. She's part of the story, but she's just the surface level. There's something deeper and sort of more unhappy going on, but still... She's there. She's been dragged out, scantily clothed, in front of everyone to see her shame. And I sometimes wonder what her backstory was. We are not told that. We don't know who she was, what motivated her to be in the position she was in, or what situation her life was in that put her there. I don't know. But she's engaged in an activity that broke the law. And she also happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so when the Pharisees went looking for someone to make an example of, well, there she was. And the Pharisees seize her and drag her out. After all, the Torah says that if you um, are engaged in adultery, that's a sin that deserves stoning. There's righteousness to be upheld. There's justice to be pursued except a careful reading of the law said that if an adulterous relationship were to be discovered, the woman and the man were to be brought before the leaders for judgment, not just the woman. So justice was not really being pursued, or or the man would have been there too. This wasn't justice. This was something else. And notice, it's not that she's what she was doing was right or to be condoned. It's just that she was the person there with the least power in her culture. The person most unable to stand up for herself. And so she would carry the weight of the blame in this charade to trap Jesus. She's full of shame, I suspect. And maybe despair because she's clear she's being held responsible she has no voice. She has no hope. And there are powerful men with the law on their side pointing their finger at her. She could, in fact, die for this, even though she's just a pawn in a larger scenario. And my mind goes all kinds of directions at this point as I listen to this story, because there's so many places I wish we could pause. What, for instance, would it be like to be caught in the middle of our own ill-advised sin and have it dragged before our community for everyone to see. How would you or I feel? And what makes you feel shame? What would you not want to admit out loud, even to your closest friends or family? We all carry something. 
and the issue of shame as a response to our sin, doesn't that take us right back to the Garden of Eden where one of Scripture's earliest story tells us about Adam and Eve doing the one thing they were asked not to do, and when they transgress that one thing, their reflex response is shame. They hide. They could hardly face the God who had, till that point in time, been a dear friend. That's what shame does to us. It's a deadly thing. And what causes us shame is different in each person because there's probably a million ways to mess up. And we're all acutely aware that we, like the woman in our story, are not faultless. So what might trip you or me up? Give people who feel they are more righteous than us the opportunity to parade our sin or brokenness in front of the people whose opinions matter to us. Or I wonder, what would it be like to be so completely voiceless that no matter what, we would know that we would not be able to tell the whole story or even our side of the story and trust that it would be heard? I've put those questions in Sermons Plus, and if you want to spend further time reflecting on this passage, go look for them. There's a rich depth here that we are only skimming over the surface of in the 20 minutes that we have to chat together. Well, the Pharisees are playing, uh, they have a game they're playing, a test they're posing. And they're doing this because they've already actually decided that Jesus is not who he says he is. They are the ones who best understand the Torah. They are the keepers of the truth, and Jesus is just too far out of the box. They know what the Messiah will look like, and Jesus is not what they are expecting. And they cannot, cannot entertain the possibility that there is something in Scripture that they have missed or understood incorrectly. After all, they're the experts, the people who've invested a great amount of time and energy to get where they are at. So no matter what Jesus says or does, they have already decided that he is not who he says he is and that he must be stopped. And eventually it'll go way further than that, and they will go from needing to stop him to needing to kill him. A thing that goes totally against the law that they were so trying so valiantly to protect, that makes you wonder how they got their mind around that. I sometimes wonder how there wasn't something, anything about Jesus that gave them pause invited them to even vaguely consider the possibility that he was the person, uh, that he could be who he said he was. After all, lots of other people found him compelling. But everything that Jesus says and does gets passed through the lens of suspicion and unbelief. It all gets explained away. He healed somebody when no one else had the power to heal, um, no one else could do what he did, well, then that power must be from the devil. That's what it is. Because, you know, he's, we have already decided he's bad, and now he's just proving it. Um, he taught in ways that were far beyond what anyone else was able to do. Didn't matter. He was a deceiver and a danger to the people. 
I think it was the first century version of what we call confirmation bias, where you decide ahead of time what you believe, and then no matter what evidence comes to the fore, you explain it away or you twist it or you disregard it. Philip Yancey observed, the miracles did just what Jesus predicted. To those who chose to believe him, they gave even more reason to believe. But for those determined to deny him, the miracles made little difference. Some things just have to be believed to be seen. The Pharisees were proof of that in spades. And we can think of, we can all think of a time when we've seen this kind of confirmation bias happen over our lifetime. And even with people of faith. And it certainly happened with the religious leaders in today's story. They know, they already knew what they believed. They have their minds made up. They are not open to prayerfully evaluating anything. And as a result, they role modeled for us what following God, I'm gonna say guardedly, but I am gonna say what following God poorly looks like. And for today, I'm gonna call it religion gone sideways. To illustrate this, I'm not going to try and draw any current parallels because I would I'd just shoot myself in the foot if I did that. But I'm going to describe what's in today's story. And uh, we'll just look at that. So center front in our passage is a group of individuals who deeply value God's word. Let's be really clear about that. These are not people who are playing with God's word. They have spent their lives learning it. They deeply value it. And they are people who feel strongly that living a life of faith with integrity is paramount. And they've invested themselves in making sure that everyone understands what's expected of them, clarifying things, explaining things, so there'd be no room for uncertainty. How could that possibly be a problem? I mean, those are things we all value, aren't they? So where's the rub? Well, Jesus would say time and again, in all your certainty and your rule keeping and your high standards, none of which are bad, but in that you've missed the heart of God. So for instance, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, which if you were ungenerous and legalistic could be considered work. When Jesus is confronted, he says, Well, the Sabbath was made for people, and not people for the Sabbath. There was an instruction about Sabbath given by God, put in place, because God loves his people. He wanted to protect them, give them rest, refocus them on a regular basis. But here's the thing. Keeping that injunction was never about being able to keep the rules well enough so that God would be pleased or appeased. It was about helping his people flourish. So doing something on the Sabbath that was full of goodness and that helped another person, like healing them, did not go against what uh, God's original intent was. And we know this because Jesus, who's God in the flesh, showed us God's heart by healing someone on the Sabbath. 
Probably, in contrast, the Pharisees had an understanding of following God that deeply valued keeping the laws and rules. And they believed that the way to a faithful relationship with a holy God was to keep those rules. But eventually, over time, as they put more explanations and clarifications around how those laws should be kept... Uh, they they replaced their concern for people with the keeping of rules. And Jesus would say to them, well, you study the scriptures, which is true. You study them diligently, which was true. Because you think in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is in there and they couldn't see it. And they couldn't admit that they couldn't see it. As Tony Campolo would say, they were involved in what we call an exercise in missing the point. A misunderstanding of God's intent in scriptures would result in them judging people that they assessed as sinners. It would cause them to shun them and leave them out. And in contrast, Jesus saw the brokenness of people through the eyes of compassion. And he would meet with them and talk to them. And uh, he'd even eat meals in their homes with them. He came close so they would know that there were second chances even for them. And think of the stories in scripture where lives were changed because Jesus shared both time and proximity. I think of the story told in Matthew 26 of the woman who was of loose morals. We have another loose moral woman in today's sermon. And she comes and she weeps on Jesus' feet. She kneels in front of him. She weeps. She wipes his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are scandalized. Like, really? She should not be here. She's she's a bad person. And I think the implication is we are good people. And so she should not be here. And Jesus, you should know better. You should send her away. And Jesus, as he is wont to do, let them know that the kingdom of God had room for people even like her. He recognized her contrition and her sorrow, and he saw her longing to be given another chance, forgiven, included. We know how God felt about this woman because we see how Jesus treated her. And you and I have seen religion and religious people who've used the Bible against people. And we've also seen people of faith who've used that same Bible to love people into the kingdom of God. And we, along with the Pharisees, get to decide how we will use the truth of God's word as we live into the places that God has put us. Now, I want to be regularly reminded to ask, what would Jesus do or how would he treat that person And then I want us to do that. So there the men stood, stone in hand, hoping that Jesus would slip up and say the wrong thing. And then they could say, aha, and we knew he was bad news. And they would wipe their hands and they'd go home self-assuredly, assured that they had been right all along. And that Jesus was not who he or others claimed he was. And then they could put this whole messy business behind them and get back to being the main influencers that the crowd listened to. Crisis averted. 
But Jesus does not do what they wanted or needed him to do. He says nothing. He bends down and he writes something in the dirt. Is he doodling? Is he writing scripture? We don't know. But it robs the crowd of their momentum. They need Jesus to say or do something, which eventually he does. Raising his head, he simply says, Well, if you're sinless, go ahead, cast the first stone. And then he goes back to writing. And there are some very sheepish looks. And they begin to put their rocks down because every single one of them knew that they were not sinless. Jesus alone is without sin and qualified to throw that stone. But he's not throwing. He's writing. The woman finds to her amazement that she has an advocate. Someone most astonishingly, has stood up for her. And perhaps that has never happened for her in her entire life. Have you ever needed an advocate? Been in a place where you felt completely hopeless and then found that someone was standing with you or for you in a way that made all the difference in the world? I was thinking about telling you a story, but I don't think I can tell it without crying. I was my son's advocate in a hospital. I saved his life. (laughs) I won't tell you all the gory details except to say that Ben, when he was 16, spent 16 days in the hospital. I, I said to him, you may not ever spend that long in the hospital again until you die, and maybe not even then. Uh, but, um, uh, a doctor misread his file. He, he had, he, his appendix burst before he started, before he got his surgery. It was all messy. He had like seven or eight bags of fluids and stuff draining into his arm. I thought he was going to die. If he'd have lived 30 years earlier, he probably would have died. And uh, But he started to get a little better, and then he started to get worse. And a nurse had told me, you know, he's going to need another certain... They're going to have to go back in and clean him up. He's He's not getting better. But the doctor misread his file and thought he'd had his second surgery. So he read it. And then he just kind of closed it and he walked out the door. And I was looking at him going, he thinks Ben already had his second surgery. So I followed him out into the hallway and I did what any good mother or advocate would do. I cried. (laughs) I know you find that hard to believe. I did. I just, I stood in front of this doctor who had all the power and I wept. But within 20 minutes... The nurses were in the room prepping Ben for surgery. And I may have saved his life. And I told you that all without crying. Good for me. Um, You know, you think about the difference that having an advocate makes. And when I think about how important it was for Ben, how important it is for you sometimes when you're in a situation where you just need someone to stand with you or for you. And it makes me appreciate all the more what Jesus does for me as my advocate, as the one who stands for me. And that also can make me weepy, but we'll just move on. In the case of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus wasn't interested in punishing her. Instead, he would eventually take 
her punishment. Um, he would die on the cross in her place, in our place. Our advocate and our payment when we are undeserving. That is very good news. To their credit, Jesus' words actually stopped the Pharisees. They know Jesus is on to something. They didn't really, I don't think, want to stone the woman. They just wanted to watch Jesus shoot himself in the foot. And when he didn't, when they were bested by the wisdom of his answers and actions, it turned them around, starting with the oldest, because those of us who've lived a little longer have a very clear sense of our own broken sinfulness, and they all filter away. This fight will have to wait for another day. And then Jesus turns to the woman. He who is her advocate. He who literally saved her life. And now he includes her in the conversation. Is there no one here to accuse you? He asks. They're all gone, she replies. With all her shame, she had expected to be condemned. And there was no doubt that this is what she deserved. And if not from the religious leaders, then certainly from this remarkable teacher. Surely he would see her deep brokenness and pronounce her sin over her. But Jesus shocks her. Well, then off with you, he says. I don't condemn you either. It takes her breath away. How could this all end in forgiveness? I wonder, can you imagine Jesus turning to you, looking you in the eye, knowing full well what your deep shame is, and saying to you, I don't condemn you. How does hearing these words make you feel? Perhaps you have shame or sadness or something that you feel is unforgivable. Perhaps someone somewhere along the line told you that you were beyond forgiveness. Or maybe you condemned yourself. You'll never be good enough or clean enough for God to love. I know we can all feel like that from time to time. And in response to that, the Apostle Paul echoes Jesus when he says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Words originally spoken to believers in Rome, true for them, true for us. And again, such good news. Jesus' final words to the woman in the story are, go and sin no more. Jesus calls her and us to an alternate lifestyle that brings life and wholeness when he tells her to go and from now on sin no more. He's not trying to punish her or shame her. He's offering her a better way. Adultery and sin of any kind come with all kinds of unhappy consequences for everyone involved at some point. So to disengage from those activities or behaviors is what is best for his beloved children. And that's what he longs for, what he came for, what he will die for. Jesus nudges the woman that direction, although ultimately she, like all of us, will have to choose. 
Her life is saved that day by the wisdom and compassion of a man she's probably never met. Maybe not even heard of. Who knows? Did she pause? Look back? Wanting to ask more questions? Stay near to this remarkable person who just advocated for her life? Extended her mercy even though we know Jesus will receive criticism for those actions from the people who felt she should have been condemned. I think she may have been torn by the conflicting emotions of wanting to go hide from the view of the public and wanting to see who this man was who had saved her life. And so the story ends. But we remind ourselves that this This is our story too. We also have sinned. We also need an advocate and a savior. So I'm going to just let you sit with some questions. I'm not going to rush you by. We're going to just, I'm going to ask them. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to prayerfully think about it. And then I'm going to pray and then I'll invite the band to come back up and um, we'll, they have a song to help us respond But just sit with these questions. We've been reminded we're at the time of year in the church calendar where we travel with Jesus as he heads towards the cross. And he's going there for this woman caught in adultery. And he's going there for you and for me. And he's going out of love. He's extending mercy. We see that and we see Jesus a little more clearly. So what will you do with this Jesus who is coming clearer to us? Will you accept his forgiveness and mercy? If, if we ask, he promises it is there for us. What will you do with this Jesus who is coming clearer to us? Just. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.